Well, we have some shocking news. A slew of 13 Fs was released from some super investors, one of them being none other than Michael Burry. You know who we're talking about, the big short guy that was played by Christian Bale. He went short the banks in 2009, and after that, skipping for 10 years, closer to recent day, Michael Burry has been repeatedly making dire predictions about the stock market. On Twitter, he's compared this 20% rally to a bear market rally, saying that this happened seven times during the 2000.com bubble. He said that contrary to the internet and Twitter sphere, there have been bear market rallies eclipsing 50%, retracements all the way back to their near all-time low. Well, warnings in general are one thing. Anyone can give a warning, but here we have Michael Burry's 13F filing, which shows where his money is, what he's actually invested in. And this is actually a bit startling. I woke up this morning and looked at his 13F filing to find that he owns a little bit, not much, a little bit of only one company, Geo, a private prison company. And this is it. This is his whole portfolio as far as I'm aware, unless he transferred his money somewhere else, unless he's hiding his money somewhere else. He doesn't own anything but this one company. He sold out of roughly 95% of his portfolio, all of it gone. He sold out of 11 out of 10 of his holdings. So maybe Michael Burry's giving more than just some thoughts off the top of his head. Maybe he actually believes there's a big crash going to happen. We're going to discuss more of this and his report and the possibilities of it later in this episode. Now, we also have some other news to get into today. Terry Smith, the British investor, the legendary high-quality company investor, he also had his 13 a filing release today and we get to see exactly what he's done with his portfolio over the past 90 days so we'll be going through this taking a look at it and i'll be giving you my take on terry smith's portfolio update in other news we have the activist hedge fund manager dan loeb buying a new stake in disney and saying that he's pushing for an espn spinoff in this episode, I'll be going over why I don't trust Dan Loeb. I think this guy is full of himself. I don't think Disney should listen to a word he says. And I'll be explaining why this hedge fund manager, Dan Loeb, shouldn't be taken serious. And then finally, we have this TikTok that's blowing up. It has millions of views of this couple where she describes this as their most productive day. So they go through their most productive day. I'll give you my reaction to it and we'll go through the level of productivity that this couple does to afford this high-rise apartment. So we have a lot to get into. We're gonna be jumping into that Michael Burry news, the Terry Smith update. We'll be looking at all of that. Before we get into that, I have to do a quick portfolio update. If you're one of the new members to this channel, a new subscriber, we actually have transparency here. I show what I'm doing with my portfolio on a week-by-week -week basis, because I like to show how real investing works. Real investing, you make money on some holdings, and you lose money on some holdings. And you can have bad months in your portfolio and good months in your portfolio. Fake investing are gurus that give advice and they're always doing well. They're always having great performance. And even if the stock market went down, they were short the market. If the market goes up, they were long the market. That's fake guru investing, and that's not what we do here. I show my returns every single week on a very transparent basis. This is what my overall portfolio looks like. It's broken up into these seven different categories. And then I have the aggregate performance right here. So right now, the total value is 380,000. I have 60,900 in the green. That's a 57% money-weighted return, $45,000 in market gains, and 15,500 in earned dividends. That's the breakdown of it, but this changes all the time. This number can go up and down day by day or week by week. That's why I show pretty frequent updates. Now, I just wanna highlight a couple things, and then we'll get into the important news. 
I want to go over a couple companies that have made some dramatic changes over the past month. Big Tech is one of them. They got another bid, and Apple's getting close to their all-time highs. I'm up $23,000 on this company. That's around 50% gains from when I bought this company. I was buying Apple heavily at $90 a share. I've decided right now to not sell Apple. So I'm not taking any gains. I'm not trimming. I want to let this one run because I think Apple is probably worth more than $200 per share. If it got to that point, I'd look at taking gains. Right now, I think that Microsoft is undervalued by a wide margin. I personally think the company's worth around 340 to 350 and it's trading at 280 The restaurant category is a newer one. Every single one of these holdings are less than six months old. Starbucks went down from day one. I've always been in the red since investing in this company, but I used to be in the red up to $6,000 at one point. And now I'm in the red by $800. So just by holding on to this company, it's regained all of its losses. Texas Roadhouse is one of my personal favorite picks. I love this company. I love the business model of it. Every time I listen to the earnings call, I realize how good the management is, how on top of everything they are. The company has a great outlook in the future. And I'm basically convinced at this point that this company will grow its earnings substantially over the next 10 years. I think it will outpace the earnings growth of the S&P 500. Right now it trades at $94 a share. And I think today it's worth around 120. Domino's Pizza is actually struggling as a company. They've had now three consecutive quarters of same store sales either being flat or shrinking year over year. And that breaks their streak of 10 plus years of growing same store sales. So unless they can get that back on track, this stock will remain flat. In the consumer category, I have a number of companies here in retail, entertainment, and consumer staples, companies that have lots of diversified products. Costco's one that I just plan on holding for the next 10 to 20 years. I don't look at the valuation. I don't really pay attention to it. I bought this company in 2018. I've added to the position a couple times. And I'm just going to let this one ride. So even if it gets up to a high valuation, I plan on holding it and seeing how it pans out over the next 20 years. Because I have a very strong suspicion Costco will be worth a lot more in 20 years. Disney's a company that has made a remarkable comeback. I was in the red at one point by over $10,000 in this company. Now I'm in the red by $3,500. So even though I'm still in the red, and that's sad to have happen... I'm not in the red by nearly as much. In fact, if we filter by the past 30 days, in the past one month, Disney's up 31%. So it's made back $4,000 in losses in just the past 30 days. But we'll go into more of Disney later when we talk about Dan Loeb taking his stake in it. Nike, Pepsi, Target, and Church and & Dwight are all companies that I've been adding to over the past six months. In real estate, we have one of the biggest winners in my portfolio. It's Vici. And I know, I've talked about this company so much that it makes people sick. Joseph, all you do is talk about Vici. I get it. This is one of my favorite holdings. I, I love this company for a lot of different reasons. The stability and predictability of the growth, the high yielding dividend income while having a high quality property. I think this company is great overall. Now, it has been an incredibly good winner. I'm up $12,500 on this one. And if we look at it, for whatever reason, and I can't fully explain all of this, but for whatever reason, Vici's just going to the moon. I don't know when it's gonna stop. I don't know when it will hit the brakes, but right now this company's like a rocket going up more and more every single day with almost no retracement. It's like it just goes up and not down at this point. And even on a day like today, when the S&P 500's in the red, the Nasdaq's barely 0.3%, Vici's up 0.52%, another green day for Vici. I can't really explain this. The company is moving in the right direction. 
everything's going well for it, but I can't explain the rapid expansion in multiple for this company. And that raises the question, should I take any gains on the company? I've gone back and forth with this. I've thought about it for the week. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And, and I decided to just let this one ride. There is a good chance it'll trade back down some. It'll give up a little bit of its gains. But I don't want to trade in and out of this company for the next 20 years. I just want to hold on to it and let it pay me those big fat dividends every three months. After the real estate category, we have two left, financial and industrials. In financials, we have JP Morgan Chase and T. Rowe Price. T. Rowe Price is one that I'm going to be exiting in the future. So spoiler alert, at some point in the future, I will be selling this company. It's not because it's a bad company, but it's just the type of company that I no longer want in my portfolio. It's a highly cyclical, highly volatile company. I think it's actually undervalued, so I'm not selling it right now. But the next time this company gets a bid and it goes through the good part of its cycle, I'll be taking gains. And then lastly, we have industrials. I only have one company in this. It's Canadian Pacific. It's a new company. And I was buying it before it raced up 15% in just a couple days. So right now I've held off on buying more of the company. And even though it's performed well since buying it, it's not that significant because I didn't get a big stake in before it took off. So that's how things look overall. Overall, we have a lot of companies really taking off in the portfolio. Texas Roadhouse is taking off. Vici's taking off. Disney's had a great month. Both the big tech companies have had good months. So it's exciting to see some gains after months and months and months of the portfolio going further in the red. But once you're feeling excited about things and once you're happy about things, you have this one guy on Twitter who's the biggest party pooper ever. And his name is Michael Burry. This guy is one that I wouldn't describe as the most fun guy to follow or listen to. Basically everything he says is the doom and gloom that will happen to your stocks and the stock market and how anything good happening, any rally, any positive momentum, how that's not really real and it's gonna go away very quickly. Here's the latest, the very latest, and this is just a day ago of warnings that Michael Burry gave. He goes under the account name Cassandra for whatever reason, I haven't figured that out, but this is Michael Burry's verified account. Contrary to the internet and Twitter sphere, there have been bear market rallies that eclipse 50%. A bear market rally is when you have a big rally during a bear market where overall things will continue to go down, but this is just one blip on the radar. It's one rally during the bear market. And he says that there's multiple bear market rallies that have eclipsed 50% retracement and led to a lower low. That means that during a market going downward, it rallied 50%, then continued to go downward, making all-time new lows. There is one in April 1930, one in November 1938, one in June of 1946, and since 1950, November 68, it depends on how you define a bear market rally or a cycle, and the life is greater than the charts. Furthermore, he goes on with his warning, doubling down with it, saying the NASDAQ retraced greater than 50% and went lower in September 2000 and January 2002. The speculation we saw in the markets in 2021 is only possibly matched by 1929 or the NASDAQ in 2000. 
and the 50% rule did not work during either collapse. So this market sell-off isn't even close to enough in Michael Burry's estimate. Now, I read these tweets, and I like to put tweets in context in general. Most tweets are just people sitting on the toilet putting thoughts off the top of their head. Things that they thought of five minutes ago. Not a lot of foresight going on in the Twitter sphere. Believe me, I'm on Twitter a lot, and I can see why people get canceled and get in trouble. It's easy to just throw something out in the Twitter sphere without thinking about it too much. And so we can look at Michael Burry here and say, all right, he's doing his thing. This is his character. He likes to warn about these grave, dire warnings about the market, and he does this routinely. And that's basically what I thought this tweet was until I looked at his 13F. Big short investor Michael Burry sold all but one of his stocks last quarter after warning an epic market crash coming. With his 13F, we can see that Michael Burry literally sold everything but this one company, which is a company called GeoGroup. GeoGroup is a private prison company. One of these companies that's in that realm of disgusting investments, not a lot of people wanna own it because it doesn't look good. They don't wanna have a private prison in their portfolio, but Michael Burry doesn't care about looking good. All he cares about is making money. And this is the concerning part. If he sold out of every company, and even all of his option positions, everything, but this one company, from what I get from this, is that his warning might be more than just some off-the-cuff thoughts. He may actually believe what he's saying here. In the Market Insider article, they say close followers of Burry are likely to interpret this decision to effectively liquidate his portfolio as a bad omen. The hedge fund manager diagnosed the greatest speculative bubble of all time in all things last summer. And he warned owners of meme stocks and cryptocurrencies that they were careening towards the mother of all crashes. More recently, he has cautioned investors not to get too excited about the recent rally in stocks, as previous downturns have seen lots of temporary rebounds before finding a bottom. He also warned about the silliness in the markets during the height of the pandemic has returned and tweeted over the weekend that he can't shake that silly pre-Enron pre-9-11, pre-Worldcom filling, referring to the euphoria that preceded the dot-com crash. Science portfolio comprised 11 stocks worth $165 million. See, this is what I'm saying when he had above a $100 million portfolio, it was worth $165 million before this last 13F. Now we look at it, and it's worth $3 million. So he sold out of 95% of his portfolio. So to put this all in context, Michael Burry did, for whatever reason, liquidate his entire portfolio. He's been pretty clear that he doesn't like the market right now. He thinks that it's heavily overvalued. He doesn't like what's going on with the meme stocks, Bed Bath & Beyond going up 184% in a month. He takes this as a signal that the market needs to be knocked down a peg, that this is behavior that happens during mania and hysteria and times that aren't good to be invested. Now, am I going to look at Michael Burry's portfolio and say it's time for me to sell out of all of my stocks? I should move to cash and wait for him to become bullish again? That's not what I'm doing, and that's not what I'll ever do. The problem with trying to follow someone like Michael Burry is that he is incredibly quick with his portfolio. He will enter 10 positions over a weekend. He will exit 10 positions. And what this 13F shows you is just a snapshot in time. We can't see his daily trades. We can't follow really what he's doing. All we can see is what he did during a snapshot of the last 90 days. So he could right now be reinvested back in the market. He could be long the market right now for all we know. The 13F shows what happened historically. It doesn't show what he's doing today. So I'm gonna take the approach of remaining invested, but also not being complacent. I'll continue to pay attention to valuations. 
I'll continue to watch my companies and make sure that they still have good futures and they're not becoming grossly overvalued. But I don't plan on following Burry and selling out of 95% of my portfolio. Now, another fund manager that I've been recently covering on my channel is Terry Smith. If you haven't seen, I've done a number of videos on him. I think he's an incredibly skilled fund manager and I think he has a very good methodology and thought process and balance to his portfolio. Now, before we jump into Terry Smith's 13F, I have to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor of this video, which is FTX US. They have a new brokerage that's just recently out of beta. So they've tested it. Now they're releasing it to everyone. So you can sign up. There's a link in the pinned comment below. If you do sign up, make sure to use the refer code Carlson. If you use that, it helps out the channel. It lets them know that I sent you and it gives you $10 credit when you do your first $100 trade. So you can see what it looks like here. This is my portfolio. I currently have 17 shares of Amazon. I bought this one on the dip and it's currently up $562. So I own a little Amazon. There's another company I've been wanting to add to this portfolio. And you can see how easy this is. I can literally go in, select two shares of Adobe. This is a company that I think it's doing really well right now. I'm gonna buy two shares of it. I can hit confirm trade and boom. I have two shares of Adobe now in my portfolio. So it goes through instantly. You can buy anytime the market's open. You can buy using fractional shares. It's part of FINRA and SIPC insured. So go ahead and sign up for it. Let me know what you think. So far, the feedback has been positive. And Terry Smith's portfolio, Fundsmith, had its 13F filing released today. So we get to see what went on. It seems like there's a lot of rebalancing, some minor changes, but not too many dramatic changes, which is good for a fund manager like Terry Smith. He's not someone that's a short-term trader. He doesn't do this Michael Burry style. He holds companies long-term. His biggest holding still remains Microsoft, but Philip Morris is climbing. This one has done well. It's up to 6.94%. Estee Lauder's one he added a tiny bit too. McCormick's another one that's 5%. The other top holdings look similar. He did reduce Pepsi a little bit. I think this was not a bearish sentiment on Pepsi, but just because Pepsi's done so well. The company's reached all-time highs, and he looked at this as probably an opportunity to shave off a few percentage and put it in other places in his portfolio. We have ADP remaining the same, Visa remaining the same. He trimmed Intuit by 21%. Now, I don't personally love Intuit as a company or a product, so that's not one that I'm going to be including in my portfolio in the future. Now, going on, he added a little bit to Brown Foreman. He added quite a bit to Adobe. And a lot of investors mistakenly say that Adobe's expensive simply because the PE ratio is high. Now it is true that Adobe does have an elevated PE ratio. It's at a 28. So if you're valuing it through a PE ratio basis, it does look expensive. But remember, Terry Smith doesn't value companies based on their price to earnings. He values them based on their free cash flow yield. Because you buy the cash flow of a company you don't buy the earnings of the company. The free cash flow yield is 3.2%, which is not too bad. You can compare that to other companies in your portfolio. See how a 3.2% free cash flow yield stacks up with many of the companies in your portfolio. And in addition to that current free cash flow yield, they're also growing free cash flow at a dramatic pace. So I think he sees this one as one that has a current decent free cash flow yield with a high likelihood of growing it substantially in the future. Now he kept Amazon the same, Nike the same, and then he sold out a bit of PayPal. This is one that surprises me. PayPal has gone down in value a lot. 
This is one that I'd assume he would be buying more of, or at least hanging on to, but he trimmed the position by 8%. The next one is MTD, Mettler Toledo. I'm not too familiar with this company. I think they make scales and different devices for laboratories and different applications like that. So I haven't done much research on this one, but just a quick glance at the metrics here, and literally every single chart on the list is moving in the right direction. The revenue, EBITDA, free cash flow, net income, earnings per share, and they're even doing a lot of share buybacks. So I can see why Terry Smith added more to this one. And after that, there's really not a lot of dramatic changes to his portfolio. Some minor trimming on very minor positions. So I look at this and I think that it makes sense that Terry Smith doesn't have any dramatic changes quarter over quarter with his portfolio. His philosophy is to buy good companies like Microsoft, like Philip Morris, like Estee Lauder, like McCormick, and simply hold on to them and let them compound for decade after decade. So if he was trading in and out of companies all the time, I think that would be a violation of his own methodology, his own thesis. So this report from Terry Smith looks very much in line with what you would expect. Minor changes to the portfolio, probably less turnover and less changes than the rest of the market, the S&P 500. Now moving on from the 13F filings, we also have big news that Dan Loeb, the activist hedge fund manager, bought a new stake into Disney, one of my bigger holdings in my portfolio. And this is the second time in recent history that Dan Loeb has owned Disney stock. And he's doing what he does as an activist investor. He's giving instructions to the management of Disney on how they should run their company and what they should do with their capital allocation. The first thing that Dan Loeb instructs Disney to do is to spin off ESPN. Quote, ESPN would have greater flexibility to pursue business initiatives that may be more difficult as part of Disney, such as sports betting. We believe that most arrangements between the two companies can be replicated contractually in the way eBay spun PayPal while continuing to utilize the product to process payments. So he's first saying, hey, Disney management, uh, go ahead and spin off ESPN because I wanna make a quick buck because ESPN will make more money as a standalone company than being tied to your parks and streaming operations. That's the first thing that he wants them to do. But he's not done there giving Disney suggestions on how to run their business. He says, secondly, Loeb urged the entertainment company to integrate streamer Hulu directly into Disney Plus, direct to consumer platform. So he wants to combine Disney Plus with Hulu and make it one big convoluted streaming service uh, more convoluted than Hulu already is, which in my, my opinion here, just as a side note, I think is a completely terrible idea. But that's what Dan Loeb wants them to do. He's also urging them to buy the rest of the stake of Hulu, the 33% remaining stake that Comcast owns, as quick as possible, and to even make an attempt to pay a premium for it. He wants to pay more for it just to make sure that Disney owns the rest of Hulu. He says, quote, we believe it would be even prudent for Disney to pay modest premium to accelerate the integration. We know this is a priority for you and hope there is a deal to be had before Comcast is contractually obligated to do so in about 18 months. So in summary, Dan has bought a new stake and he's urging Disney to spin off ESPN and to combine Hulu with Disney+. Plus. That's what he's basically telling the company that he wants them to do. And I want to just outline why Disney management and Bob Chapek should get this letter from Dan Loeb and promptly put it in a paper shredder. That's the first step they should take. And then they should never think of Dan Loeb or his suggestions on their company ever again. First of all, this is not the first time that Dan Loeb has owned Disney stock. It was only two years ago 
When Dan Loeb, the same guy, bought into Disney with a big stake, he wrote this eloquently worded letter saying that Disney needs to cancel their dividend and go in on Disney Plus content. He gave the same type of thing he's doing now. Lots of instructions on what the company should do. Then, only a couple months later, after seeing Dan Loeb sees all this value, all this long-term growth in Disney, a couple months later, he sold his entire stake out of Disney. The whole thing, completely out of the company, for a quick 30% gain. He's not a long-term investor. He's in it for a quick stock bump. He wants to do whatever he can do to get immediate value out of the company and quickly ditch it for the next company that he can try to boss around for quick gains without any care to the long term of the company. Immediately after doing that with Disney, Dan Loeb also bought a huge stake in Amazon. And he wrote a different letter saying that Amazon has over $1 trillion in untapped value, talking eloquently about how great the AWS business is, how great it is for long-term growth. And guess what Mr. Dan Loeb did only a couple months later? He sold his entire stake in Amazon. After the stock went up a couple percentage, he got his 10, 20% bump in the stock. He sold the entire stake and moved on. And in both cases, he's not playing a passive role. He's an activist investor writing open letters, instructing management on how to do their job. Why should management take any consideration from an activist investor that has a holding time of two months for a stock? So in my opinion, the first thing that Bob Chapek should do is get these suggestions from Dan Loeb and go ahead and throw them right in the trash where they belong. Now on the note of Disney, like I said previously with this company, it's one of my bigger holdings. I currently have a value of $18,000 of this company and I've invested over 20,000 into it. So I'm in the red right now, but this is a company that I had very high expectations for. I think it's one of the few companies that in the streaming sphere can reach massive scale, can have the same scale as Netflix with their Disney Plus service. And that is a tough feat to accomplish. So even though I've been disappointed with Disney and Bob Chapek's management, having that lawsuit from Scarlett Johansson was embarrassing, picking losing political battles is not a good thing for Disney as well, I've been disappointed with some of the things the company has done. Even so, I've remained a shareholder of this company. I haven't sold a single share yet. And I will say that this most recent interview from Bob Chapek is one where He's just growing on me a little bit. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because he got a beard, but something about him has changed a little bit. And I like his demeanor. I like the way that he's communicating. I like the way that he looks at the business, the pricing, and the future of it a little bit better than I did six months ago. Bob Chapek has had a problem with communication and different aspects of relating to the talent portion of the business, but he's always been a notably good operator squeezing out profits of the park, squeezing out profits across the company, which is important if you want to run a growing and profitable business. Here's how he responded to, I think, some pretty aggressive questions. These are actually hard-hitting questions about Disney and their pricing. Disney has massive pricing power. They're flexing that pricing power. And Mr. Chapek here gets asked a lot of questions about this. Disney Plus, at the same price as you're already charging, many people thought it would cost less. Talk to us about this pricing strategy. Well, we had a great quarter overall. I mean, not only in streaming, but in our parks business as well. As you've seen, we had tremendous resilience uh, amongst all the fears of inflation and recession. Our parks business was extremely strong. 
with a 40% increase in yield. So people are coming and they're spending more and they're very happy guests. But you're right, our, our streaming business has been really phenomenal. Uh, again, amongst many fears, we've gone ahead and added 15.5 million households for our streaming businesses, 14.4 of those on Disney+. Plus. That's right, Disney added 14.4 million new net subscribers on just Disney+. Plus. And the analyst forecasts were for 10 million. So the summary is Disney Plus is growing. It's even growing faster than expectations. And that's a big part of the business, obviously. But on top of that, the parks business is also going really well for Disney. And so I think we alleviated a lot of fears that maybe, you know, our growth was slowing down. But at the same time, we know there's a big focus on profitability and we reaffirmed our guidance for profitability within 24. So not only did they blow away their revenue and earnings expectation this last quarter, but they also gave very strong guidance. And I don't think most people pay attention to this, but I thought it would be interesting to keep track of my earnings and revenue beat on all the companies in my portfolio and see what compares to the rest of the market. So far, my portfolio is soundly beating the wider market. Right now, 61% of the market has beat earnings and revenue expectation this earnings season, and around 82% of my portfolio has beat earnings and expectation. So we're beating it by a very wide margin. Disney was the most recent one to beat their earnings and give strong, consistent forecast with their next year earnings. Now in this interview, they go through a lot of different subjects, and overall I thought that Bob Chapek gives very good answers to it, but at the very end he's asked again about the dividend. When do you plan to reinstate a dividend? Well, you know, uh, that's important to us. Uh, returning uh, 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 to shareholders is an important piece of our overall proposition. Uh, we want to go ahead and deleverage as quickly as possible. Uh, and we're working towards that. And with our great results, uh, it's giving us the ability, quite frankly, to deleverage a lot quicker than we had thought. So we're optimistic about uh, at some point returning to a dividend uh, and uh, looking forward to you know, that when it when it's possible. The answer is a really good one. They're deleveraging, which is a way of saying they'd rather pay down debt right now than pay a dividend. And this is the right move for Disney. This is smart capital allocation. Their debt has exploded over the past couple of years as they bought the Fox assets, as they've had to take on more debt during COVID. And so with this explosion in debt, they want to just reduce that and get it back down to healthy levels. And you can see quarter by quarter, they are reducing the amount of debt. And I don't suspect that Disney will pay a dividend again until this gets back down to healthy levels and until their free cash flow starts to grow again. So Disney right now is a recovery. It's a turnaround play. And it's one that I want to continue to have in my portfolio, despite the fact that they don't pay a growing dividend, which every other company in my portfolio does. This is the one exception. I bought the company when they were paying a dividend but I'm gonna hold on to them. I wanna give it time until they get their earnings back up to where it was in 2018. Now, last but not least, we have to get to this TikTok because it has a, a very compelling title. It says the most productive morning ever as an entrepreneur in Boston. So this couple, I think, is living in this nice Boston high rise. It looks like a pretty immaculate apartment. And they obviously seem very successful. They're entrepreneurs. And this is what they do in their most most productive morning ever. So let's just go ahead, uh, give some of this a watch and I'll, I'll try to learn something from it. The most productive morning ever as entrepreneurs in Boston. Started the day with some yoga and meditation, then Daniel made us some iced coffees, we did some journaling and I was- 
So the first thing that we do is we dance a little bit in front of the mirror. And then we do some yoga, which is basically just stretching our neck around and sitting Indian style on the, the mat there. I could up my productivity and dance in front of the mirror, do a little yoga in the morning. After that, they have their morning coffee. And then she says that she sits there journaling in the sun and sweats profusely. So that's the third step of the day. Sit out in the sun, write in your journal, and make sure you get really, really sweaty. Now let's see what they do next time to get to work so we got hyped up but then things got a little weird so I went up to the office. So the fourth step if I understand this correctly after getting really sweaty from sitting out in the sun you go through a, a little hype session. This is what you have to do. Get really hyped and this is apparently what it should look like. Now after that you go into your incredible high-rise apartment where you have all this expensive filming gear. Great flow session on a course that I'm working on. It's all about reprogramming your mind for success. If you're interested definitely check out the link in my bio. Then I went back downstairs and got- Now this actually looks like she did some work here. This is the first point in this most productive day uh, highlight where I actually think that she is doing something. It looks like she has a computer and she has some words on the screen of the computer. And this looks like something for a blog, understanding the mind, reprogramming for success. This is the type of self-help blog type of stuff that you see online on, on those kind of blogs where they, they have the ads. These are the five tips of success, right? Those type of things. This looks like it could take a couple hours to do maybe, but this is the first point where I'd actually say that she's probably doing something productive for the day. So maybe we're just getting into it. We have a little bit more in this. Let's continue on. Downstairs and got ready for the gym. And this is the first- All right, so we're back at the mirror. One of the common themes of a very productive day is constantly looking at yourself in the mirror. You have to be looking at yourself at a minimum of once every three hours. And if you haven't done that, it's just been too long. So make sure if you're being productive for the day, you constantly visit the mirror, hopefully with a phone so you can share with other people how good you look while staring at yourself in the mirror. And I check my phone, which allows me to focus in the morning, but also makes the time go by fast on the treadmill. Then you do your workout. So if we're keeping track, we've done yoga in the morning, and then you do a sweaty session on the couch journaling. And then after doing a couple checkups in the mirror, you once again go to the gym and work out again. Then I had some lunch, went up to the pool and did a guide. Again, we've established the pattern. It's time number four to visit the mirror. Make sure you check in. I had meditation, which is so great after a flow session. After that, you just go up to your high-rise rooftop pool that everyone has in their apartments and you simply enjoy the weather up there. Then I did some stretching, got re Then we're back to the yoga mat again. We're going back to square one where we started off this morning. Focused and worked on this video. And then finally to wrap up the day, you make a video of how much work you accomplished. So that's it folks, that's how entrepreneurs work. That's how real business people work. If you're going to a job and you're, you're actually on a computer, you're working throughout the day, you're either programming, you're writing code, you're writing marketing material, you're making sales calls, that's not real work. Because how many times throughout the day did you check yourself in the mirror? How many times were you on a yoga mat? If it was less than four times, you did not have that productive of a day. So keep that in mind next time you're trying to be productive. There's some real tips here, real things that we can learn from. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. I'll have another one in a couple days, so make sure you're subscribed and I'll see you soon.